Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible or an app that's a Bible or what have you, there are, there are Bibles provided for you at the middle of each aisle. Uh, again, like the pens, you can just flag somebody down who's sitting over there and they'd be happy to pass one down to you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to just take that one. That'd be our gift to you. We would, we would love to be able to serve you in that way and then to, to talk to you about whatever you read there. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 uh, because we are taking the next step in what has been for us so far a, a, a study that's taken us from the very beginning of this year all the way to this point, and that's going to carry us through to the end of the year, a study through the New Testament letter known as Hebrews. Now, if, you, uh, if you're not familiar with Hebrews, what, what you'll need to know to, to be able to connect with where we are today is that this guy who wrote it was writing to some friends who he knew were on the, on the edge with their commitment to Jesus. They were being drawn in to something that, to options that were safer, that weren't going to threaten their lives, that sometimes seemed to make more sense than the gospel as they had received it. They were on the edge of turning away from him and going back to what they had known before. And so this man, whoever he was, wrote this letter to his friends to try to convince them of why Jesus offers something that nobody else could offer. He's been doing that in depth for the last several chapters. And where we are now, what we'll be looking at today, he's changed gears a little bit, and he's shifted from telling them all kinds of truth about Jesus to trying to explain to them what they need to do with that truth, right? He set them up with, with what you might call tools, these, these promises that they can latch onto about who Jesus is, and now he's telling them how to use it. If Jesus is who I've said that he is, in other words, then do these things, what we're looking at now is a set of three things that he's called us to do. We've already looked at the first two in the last two weeks. And, and audio from those, if you're interested in, in hearing the background to what we're doing today, you should be able to find that on the website. Today we're in command number three, trying to put to practice the things that have been talked about earlier in the letter. It's a command that has everything to do with Christian community. Now, I'm guessing that if you've been around the church world at all, especially in the last... 10 or 20 years, you've seen that community is a real buzzword. It gets used a lot. And I guess not really just in Christian circles either. I mean, it seems like in our culture at large, we're really into community right now. We don't really precisely define it. We know it's, it's something that's not individual, right? It's, a, it's, it's definitely not living life all by yourself. We know that much, but we don't have a very crisp definition of what it is. So it shows up as you know, an adjective describing types of colleges or types of gardens. It shows, it's, it's an adjective that, uh, that, that shows up in TV shows. There's a, there's a half-decent sitcom named, named for community. There's, uh, there's things like Facebook, which is kind of a new twist on it. Is it community? Is it not community since it's online? What about Xbox Live? If you're playing, you know, with people all over the world with your little headset, is that a kind of gaming community? I mean, it gets used that way too, right? And in the church, there's similar confusion, I think, sometimes about the specifics. What is community, and, and, and how would we know how to recognize it, and then how would we know how to build it? Those are the questions that I think we should be asking. I think the passage we're looking at this morning gets at those questions, and it gets at them in a really, really specific way. Here's what you need to know. The last command we looked at last week, verse 23, was a command to hold on to the promises of the gospel, even when you doubt, even when your life circumstances or what seems plausible to you in your mind call these promises into question, the command was to hold on. Just don't let go of Jesus. 
then we get this command to be together, to participate in community. And then right after the command to be together and participate in community, we get a statement that the reason you should do this, you should do it even more, you should have more urgency about it, as you see what he calls the day drawing near, a reference to Jesus coming back to the end of the world as we know it. So right in between, a command to hold on even in the face of doubt and a command to live this life in light of the coming of Jesus, we get instruction about Christian community. I think what we're meant to see is that community, the way that we live together, is the key to us holding on in the face of doubt and to us living lives that are ready for Jesus to come back. Without each other, we can't hold on and we won't be ready. That's, that's the urgency of Christian community. What we want to do today, unpacking these two verses, verses 24 and 25, is try to see very simply what is Christian community and how does Christian community work? What is it and how does it work? If you found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So what is Christian community? I think verse 24 gives us a great little concise answer. And I think its description is one that may surprise you. The reason I think it might surprise you is that my sense, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that when we think about community, one of the first things that we think about is a sort of affirmation and acceptance, like a universal affirmation and acceptance of us by other people. Community requires that you be able to participate in it without being judged or, or bumped out of it, so to speak. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, that aspect of it, that we have to affirm people. I think Christian community is all about that. I mean, it's, it's about not requiring people to clean up their acts, so to speak, before they can taste the goodness of God's promises. God's promises are for people who have real problems, and Christian community is made up of people who just realize that they have problems, and that's why they come together, right? It's not perfect people. It's people who know they need help. And affirmation, acceptance is on the, is on the forefront of that. We have to have it, but I don't think that that It's nearly all of it, right? That Christian community, as opposed to some other forms perhaps, requires more than just a blanket affirmation and acceptance. Christian community requires that the people in the community love each other too much to let each other stay the way they are. We might accept you, but we want to change you. I think that that should come through pretty clearly. I, want to, I think the way to break this verse down, the way to make this come out a little bit clearly, that Christians are about accepting each other with an agenda, so to speak, should come, should come out, uh, if, we, if we can isolate the three pieces to verse 24. Look at it again with me. There are three pieces to it. First piece is the simple command, the gist of the command, which is, let us consider. Or, it's your, your translation may have it some other way. My translation has, let us consider. There's something that doesn't really come out quite clearly in the, in the English translation. As you may know, the, the first writing of this letter was in another language altogether. It was in Greek. And, and in English, we do the best we can to get the sense of it, but sometimes things are lost. And one of the things that I think is lost here is that 
Actually, if you wanted to read the command straight up, it would be, let us consider each other. Or even more precisely, it would be, let us keep on thinking about each other. That's the gist of the command. That's the foundational command of these two verses. It's meant to describe a way of life. It's a simple thing, but a radically unnatural thing. What it's calling for is for us to get outside of our own heads, right? Where we tend to turn in on ourselves and think only about ourselves and break ourselves down. And, and anytime we even think about other people, maybe I'm, maybe I'm saying too much about me, maybe you're not like this, but most of my thoughts about other people tend to ultimately be thoughts about me because they're thoughts about how does that person feel about me? What does that person have to offer me? What do I have to do to that person to get what I want to? Right? When I'm at my worst, those are the things that I'm thinking about. So even, even my thoughts of others are actually thoughts about me. And that's the way all of us are, if we're being honest. We are incessantly focused on ourselves. And this command is to get outside of ourselves and walk around thinking about each other. It's that simple. But how? How are we to be thinking about others? What are we thinking about? That's piece number two to this verse. So if the basic command is walk around all day thinking about other people, then here's what you're supposed to think about other people. Let us consider, here's how my translation puts it, how to stir up one another. How to stir up one another. What this piece of the puzzle means, I think, is this. How to engage or direct each other. This is probably my favorite word in the verse, and this is another one of those cases where in the the, the language that it was written in, it carries a kind of meaning or connotation that you might not immediately get out of the way that it's translated here. Right right here, it's clearly a positive thing. Stir people up. Figure out how how to help them along, right? It's very positive. And I think it was meant to be positive in the way it was written. But one of these New Testament uh, scholars that I was reading this week actually said this is one of the only times that you can find it anywhere where it's used in a positive sense. That normally this word is used for something like irritate or exasperate. Not stir each other up and help each other along, but just sort of get up in each other's business and annoy each other, right? That's the normal sense of this word. So if we, if we put a positive spin on that normal sense of the word, I think what we're called to is to always be thinking about how we can prod each other along, how we can get into each other's business with a purpose for each other's good. Now, obviously, don't go, don't go anywhere. I don't mean for you to go. I'm not saying you just inject yourself as the know-all, as a know-everything kind of person and, and constantly go around giving advice that's not asked for you, but from you. But, but as a church, what we do when we commit to membership in a body is basically ask everybody else to get up in our business, to take a personal responsibility or ownership over our, uh, our Christian life, to help us, to, to care enough about us, to know us, and to want to prod us along. It's, the image, I think, that comes out here, this second piece, is almost like cattle prod, which I don't know, I'm from an, an, an agricultural and farming community. Maybe that image is lost on you guys, but a cattle prod is like this. PETA hates these things, right? It's like a, a charged-up rod that's got uh, electrical shock in it, and you just kind of walk behind the cows and try to, try to get them onto the trailer. Right? It may hurt for a little while, but you get on the right trailer, going where you need to go. And I think the image here is that we're to walk around thinking about how to cattle prod each other onto the right trailer. I should not have used that example. I've got a lot of blank stares here. A lot of blank stares here. I think you guys get what I mean, though, right? 
It's let us consider, let us walk around thinking about each other and how to help each other on a certain path, on a certain direction, in an intimate and personal way. And here's the piece number three. The content of our prodding, the direction that's set for us in our engagement with each other is love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. Now, that may not sound too, uh, too dramatic. I don't think it's meant to. It sounds kind of you know, bland and obvious. I think he means it as a summary of what Christian living looks like. I think what he's saying is, let's consider how to stir each other up to growing to look more like Jesus. Because in, in the New Testament, broadly, what it looks like to follow Jesus is to love like Jesus loved, with the kind of selfless, self-giving, self-sacrificing attention to what others need. That's, that's the love part, the kind of love that took Jesus to the cross. And good deeds is just a summary of us acting on that love. If the love is the motivation or the driving force behind the way we treat people, good deeds is actually doing something with it. It's serving based on that love, to, trying to, to seek to do the things that Jesus would do. So love and good deeds is just growing to look more and more like Jesus. It's the basic goal of Christian living. It's to give ourselves away like Jesus gave himself for us, and it is highly unnatural, and that's why we've got to spur each other on to it. Let me sum this up. This is what Christian community is. What this verse calls for, I think what we can say defines Christian community, is a group of believers who take responsibility for each other's growth in Jesus. That's basically it. So the question is, it's not rocket science, right? Are you living your life like this? What this is described as is a goal for all believers, not a super few or a group of elders or pastors who get paid to do it, right? It's what Christian living looks like because Jesus is who he says he is. Let us consider how to help each other become more like him. That's the basic command. Is this how you approach your Christian life and relate to other believers? A while back, I saw this documentary. I didn't even see the whole thing. It was on PBS, I think. I don't remember the name of the guy or the name of the show or anything, so you're probably not going to be able to find this. You just have to take my word for it. But I saw this documentary on a guy who moved out in the middle of nowhere. I think it was up in the Pacific Northwest somewhere. And built... He was moving out there with a video camera to sort of survive for a year all by himself. Moved out there, built his own cabin. You know, the video is showing him, like, hewing logs. Isn't that the word? Hewing them. Hewing the logs and putting them up with pegs that he made himself and doing it all, doing all the lifting, everything all by himself. Everything that he ate was food that he caught from a river or shot in the woods. He grew, his, he, he grew vegetables. He was, he was living a completely isolated and self-sufficient life. And the, the point of the documentary was a celebration of it like look at this guy who's kind of going back to nature and making it happen he's he is not depending on all the modern conveniences that we've grown so used to right it was a celebration of the individual ideal self-sufficiency but i couldn't help thinking that as cool as it would be to be able to do all those things this guy's life is useless to anybody else we were really celebrating him for going out in the middle of nowhere and just living where he's not useful to anybody He never says an encouraging word to anybody. He never takes a home-cooked meal to somebody who just had a baby. He he is useless to everybody. And the first thing I thought about was how often I think our tendency as Christians is to pursue that route. Because especially those of us who have been brought up well with good spiritual disciplines, a lot of times the way we would define our Christian life is to be pursuing God well, to be going after him, to be 
reading our, our Bibles and getting things from our Bible reading and to be praying faithfully and to be experiencing him, searching for an experience of him. It even shapes the kind of songs that we like and the certain passages that we're really into. For some of us, it looks like seeking a deeper knowledge of him, like a better understanding of the Bible. And we could spend hours and hours doing that on our own, in our studies. Some of us do it, guilty, right? But never get outside of ourselves. I think some of us, have been driven, to, or some, some of us at different times in our lives, maybe even today, have been driven to this kind of isolated, man-on-an-island kind of Christianity because of the flaws of other people. Because maybe we've been hurt at, 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 at some Christian community we've been a part of, or maybe you know, other people seem to be dragging us down because they're not as committed as we are. They don't get the same things out of the Bible that we do, or their prayer lives just struggle to get on track. And and being around them seems to zap our spiritual energy, and so we think we need more. We think we need to, to isolate, whatever, whatever the reason might be. I think some of us live this way. And I think that the message of these two verses is that if you're living this way, you're living selfishly and you're living naively. Here's what I mean. If you're living without constantly thinking about others and how to encourage them, you're living selfishly because you, don't, you aren't giving yourself a context in which you get to display the kind of love that took Jesus to the cross. If that's the shape of Christian living, then you aren't getting an opportunity to, to portray that shape because you aren't, you aren't in, involving yourself in messed up people's lives, right? The idea is to share our messed upness towards the, towards the, the end of becoming better and getting, finding healing in the promises of God. And if you aren't willing to be brought down a notch because of someone else's flaws or weakness or apathy, then you aren't living your Christian life on the template that Jesus gave you. You're living selfishly. But you're also living naively. Because if you think that you can live the way Jesus wants you to as his follower and not have any interaction with other people to speak into your life and to encourage you along, then you misunderstand the depths of sin in your own heart. You don't get it. And you will one day, but it might be too late. You're living selfishly or naively. The call of this passage, like I said, is pretty easy. Christian community is living on purpose for other people to help them get to be more like Jesus. That's what it is. So where we want to end is with how it works. How does Christian community work? And that's verse 25. Verse 25 is really just an amplification of verse 24. Verse 24 has the command, let us consider how to do these things, stir each other up. Verse 25 uses what's called participle to to sort of hang off of that main verb and explain more about it, right? So here's what it would look like to let us consider how to love each other and stir each other up to, to love and good deeds. And it's two pieces to the puzzle. We've got to be together. We have to be together so that we can know each other. And then we've got to speak the truth of the gospel to each other. Those are the two pieces. I told you it was really simple. It isn't rocket science. It's really hard, but it's really simple. Christian community is a a group of people who take responsibility for each other's walk with Christ, for encouraging each other to look and live more like Jesus. And how Christian community works is being together enough to know each other and then speaking the truth of the gospel into each other's lives. Those two pieces. I'm going to take them one at a time. They're both in verse 25. So verse 25 starts out with a a qualifier. 
what it would mean to consider how to stir each other up is to not neglect to meet together, right? Not neglecting to meet together. And if you want to turn that into a positive, what it would look like to do this well is to go out of your way to meet together, to be together. Now, I'm guessing if you've ever heard a sermon on, or, or a lesson or anything on these verses, the way you might have heard it pitched to you was as a reason to come to church on Sundays. Because it is. And because we preachers want to preach to people, right? So we go there. It's a little self-serving, but it's also accurate. It does mean you should come to church on Sundays, but it's way more than that. It's way more than that, because what we're going to see in a minute is that the reason that you meet together, what the, the content of those meetings together, is to encourage each other with the truth of the gospel. And in a meeting this size, it's happening some. It's happening, I'm getting that opportunity to encourage you guys, and with our singing, we have an opportunity to encourage each other, but, but we don't get what this verse is shooting for just out of being here, because even in a church our size, it's easy to slip in and slip out and never be known by anybody. It's easy to slip in and slip out and never know anybody that you can help. So this meeting isn't enough. What it's calling for is going out of your way to bring people, integrate people into your life on a purpose. It's possible to come to these meetings as a consumer, to consume what you see and what you hear, much like you'd consume a movie. But what's called for here is meeting with a purpose in a setting that allows us to engage each other, to encourage each other. And like I said, it's not that complicated, but it's really hard because there's a lot of things that could keep us from this. Sometimes we're apathetic. Sometimes we're just tired. And bringing people into your life, it can be exhausting. You work jobs, you have kids, you're in school. You have plenty of things that are that are draining you each week. And to bring people into your life like this verse is calling for is a terribly inconvenient thing. And often, if you get involved in this kind of ministry to each other very, very much at all, you're going to see that it doesn't always have a clear payoff. It's not like you get to the end of your week and you say, hey, I had these meetings with these people and here's what, here's what resulted from those meetings. Here's this, this time was well spent. You know, you're not checking things off a list. It doesn't work that way. You have to trust that it's going to be worth it over the long haul and that's hard to do when you're tired and apathetic and and it's so inconvenient there's lots of reasons we don't do it maybe it's because we're insecure or ashamed and we don't want to be known i don't know what makes it hard for you i wouldn't pretend to know that but whatever that is whatever that thing is it's a barrier to you for getting to this kind of meaningful time with people you got to identify that thing and fight it because it is keeping you from being useful and from being encouraged in the way that, that God intended when he set this, this church up. There is no meaningful Christian community apart from quality time together. Now here is where I want to I make a plug for our small group system. I mentioned it earlier in our announcements. Many of you are already signed up and participating in it, and, and we could use you to help us explain to other people who haven't participated in them yet why they're, they're so encouraging to us. But let me just make, it, make the purpose of these groups as simple as I can. The purpose of these small groups is really stripped down and streamlined, and it is this verse. It's to provide a weekly time to meet so that you can speak encouraging words of gospel truth to each other's lives. That's it. It's that simple. Because we know that we're tired and it's inconvenient and sometimes we're apathetic and we just want to go home and veg and we won't do this kind of meeting with each other unless we, unless we plan for it. 
And our small group system is just a, a system of planning that allows you to just install this thing in your week so that you are on the hook to be with people in meaningful engagement at least once a week and to use that time as a springboard into other times with those people during the week. That's what the system is for. If we don't plan to be together, it probably won't happen. And if small group, I've been suggesting small group is a great way to structure your life for meeting together if that isn't going to work for you then there are lots of other ways it could look. I would just encourage you, as part of living out verse 24, which is walking around thinking about how to help each other, make one of the things you're thinking about all the time, how can I get more time with people that I want to encourage? It could be lunch at the hospital. It could be breakfast before work. It could be play dates. Lots of ways this thing could look. Part of considering each other is thinking about how to make this happen logistically in your life. If you aren't thinking about it, it probably won't happen, and other people and your own soul will be the worst for it. We've got to meet together. That's part one of how community works. Part two, the other part, the other half, so to speak, of verse 25, is, that, is the purpose of our meeting together. It's to encourage one another. Meeting together, like I said, is the baseline for Christian community. It sounds obvious, but you just you can't have a community without face time with each other. But Christian community, distinctively Christian community, doesn't just happen because you happen to be together, right? There's lots of other ways and reasons to be together. Um, I plan to to spend a lot of time with guys watching football in the next three months, and I stand by that decision. And I'm going to I'm going to sacrifice other things so that I can do that. I'm going to inconvenience myself to some extent so that I can do that. So, so you, can, you, can, you can live out the first part of what we've been talking about with meetings that don't have any sort of distinctively Christian purpose, right? We all do it for whatever we're interested in. And honestly, watching football with guys is a great way to build up some relational capital that can lead to, see, I stand by it. It can lead to the kind of engagement that I'm calling for here. But it ultimately isn't itself, by itself, Christian community. Because Christian community is meeting on purpose, and the purpose is the other part of verse 25. It is to encourage each other. Uh, the way the verse is set up, not meeting together, don't do that. That's, that's one part of the contrast. Don't stop meeting together, is what it says, but encourage one another. So I take that to mean that the content of meeting together is just to encourage one another. That's what it would look like to not stop meeting together. And I think Hebrews has given us plenty of insight by this point into what he means by encouraging one another. I think what he means is that we're supposed to do for each other what he's been doing for his friends for this whole letter. And that is to remind each other that the promises of the gospel are for us, they speak to our specific life needs, and that they are true. That's what it means to encourage each other. Think about how he's doing it. For those of you who have been in this Hebrew study with us for a while, Think about the ways that he's done this. He's reminded us that, that Jesus is, is the final word from God that tells us everything that we need to know about how God feels about us. He's reminded us that in Jesus we have the last and only priest that we will ever need, the one who perfectly bridges the gap that our sin created between us and God and allows us to feed off of him and to enjoy his presence even though we, aren't, we don't deserve it. 
We have the promise that Jesus is the one whose sacrifice for us is so perfect that he can completely wipe us clean no matter how stained our lives by sin. He is the one who is coming again for those who are eagerly waiting for him. These are the promises of the gospel that our author has been pointing his friends back to again and again in the real-life circumstances that they found themselves in. Threatened, even their lives were threatened by, by, the, by the prospect of death for their faith. And they were, they were seeing their property stolen and their friends thrown into prison. Their lives were rough. And the way that he encountered the roughness of their lives was to point them away from themselves and their own circumstances to Jesus and the eternal, unshakable promise that he is for us once and for all. That's how he encouraged his friends. And when he tells us here, don't stop meeting together, but encourage one another, what he's telling us is make it a point to integrate people into your lives so that you can point them to Jesus as needed. And here, to sum that up, I think you put these two pieces together, what you have is we're called to, Christian community only works when we know each other well enough to know what each other needs. We understand our lives, where our weaknesses are, what our needs are. And we know the gospel well enough to speak it intelligibly into those needs, to match it up with what this person needs. When you have those two pieces in place, Christian community works. We have to know each other, be students of each other. We have to know the gospel and be students of the gospel so that we can bring them together for each other. It's simple, but it's a lifelong calling. Let me summarize it another way. Following Jesus is the essence of the Christian life. That's what we mean by discipleship. And following him means taking a cue from him and not from ourselves, right? And that means dying to being our own boss. And that death is daily and it is brutal and painful, right? It means, it means coming to crave, having our hearts exposed for what they are so that Jesus can take ownership of them and heal them. That's what it means. That's a daily death, because it means owning up to our brokenness and selfishness and rebellion. And if this is what discipleship requires, then I hope it's clear why we can't do this alone. We need other people to help see our brokenness when we have convinced ourselves we aren't broken. We're like, I, I, one analogy I heard was we're like the guy on the subway who's just talking to himself, right? And he's clearly in his own world. And Clearly, his own world makes perfect sense to him. It's a coherent world that's perfectly plausible. And he is interacting in his own world with whoever else is in there. But we know, seeing from the outside, that he is not stable, right? He's unhealthy. We do that. Our sin's effect on us is the same kind of blindness that the guy on the subway who's talking to himself is is suffering from. We are talking only to ourselves, living in a world that we've created, justifying us, uh, convincing ourselves that we don't have problems that that need healing. And what we need is somebody on the outside to see us for who we really are, to be able to tell us, you know what, you are broken and in these specific ways, but Jesus can heal that and he can redeem it. Without this, I think we're stuck where we are. We need, because it's such a painful thing to come to recognize how, how badly we need the gospel, we need other people not just to show us how we need the gospel, but to remind us that the gospel is for us. To meet our recognition of our own flaws 
with the promises of the gospel that are good enough to wipe them away. That's what we need, and we can't do that for each other. We cannot self-medicate fully. We need surgeons who can understand the heart, pierce into it with truth, and that's what we're called to do for each other. Have you experienced this kind of community? Is this something you've known and tasted? Are you living for other people in this way? I want to share with you, in closing, the first time I really remember tasting this, the pain and the beauty of it. I had a friend in college. He was actually uh, in graduate school, and I was in college, several years older than me, who pursued me like this. We were in the same church together, went to the same school, same friendship circles. But he was older than me. He was wiser than me. He'd seen more of the world than me. He stood to gain nothing from me. But he took an interest in me. He made time at his initiative for us to be together as friends. And from that place, he offered me a consistent and gracious and loving challenge to pursue Jesus more deeply. I remember uh, he saw, he, he could tell probably right away that in college I was not a good churchman. I was a consumer. I was a church hopper. I went, I, I stayed only engaged enough to get what I thought I wanted out of it, the kind of quality teaching that my discriminating tastes required, right? And, and I was not willing to engage with other people unless they wanted to take what I particularly wanted to give. And since nobody was buying, I was, dis, I was distant and disengaged, and he saw that. And so he integrated me into his life as he served the church in the way that it needed to be served, not in the way he wanted to serve it, but in the way that it needed to be. And so he had me with him while he was giving people rides who didn't have rides to church, while he was caring for the elderly, while he was, while he was serving in things like a cleaning rotation or child care. He had me seeing him doing this, modeling what it would look like to serve like Jesus in the context of our church, what it would look like to give myself to the church. He tried, in other words, to use the language of our passage, to stir me up to love and good deeds. As we got to know each other better, as he came to know me better, he began to see things about me that I couldn't see for myself. And so he became a heart surgeon for me. He was the first person that I remember ever confronting me with the fact that I cared way too much about what other people think about me, right? And that, that this deep concern for how other people think about me showed that I didn't fully appreciate what it was to be approved by God fully and perfectly. That what it showed was not just pride, but an inability, or in, uh, or, uh, yeah, an inability to believe the gospel, the promises of God to me. He first started showing me that, putting it on my radar. And I'm still learning these things about myself today, but he put them on my radar then, and they've been with me ever since. And all that started with him thinking about me, somebody who didn't deserve his attention, but whom God had providentially put in his path. He had put me into his life, and, and this friend took that as all the sign that he needed that he was supposed to go after me to get to know me well enough to know what I needed, where I needed to believe the promises of the gospel better, and then to speak them to me in a way that would draw me in. That's our calling. If Jesus is who Hebrews claims that he is, and if we claim to be owned by him, then this right here is how we're going to live with and for each other. Let's pray that God would make it so. Father, This kind of community is so beautiful and so simple, but so hard to pull off. It requires a daily dying to ourselves because we have to be exposed, but to our 
our, our desires for peace and for rest and to not be inconvenienced by anyone. It requires so many kinds of death to live this way well. And so we trust that this is exactly what it looks like for us to take up the cross and follow you, to be willing to die this death to help others look more like Jesus and to come to look more like Jesus ourselves. So we ask that the power of your spirit would help us to die this way willingly and joyfully. We commit ourselves and our church community to you. In Jesus' name, amen.